Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable and more equitable businesses and communities. My name is Kip Scheuer. I'm the Climate Change Program Director at the Local Government Commission. I'm your host for this monthly series on adaptation and livable communities, where we've been discussing ways we can create more resilient communities by fostering knowledge exchange, identifying new resources, and sharing innovative perspectives and tools. Today, our guest is Kate Gordon. Kate is an internationally recognized expert in the intersection of clean energy and economic development. She wears a number of hats, including partner on the sustainability team of Ridge Lane Limited Partners, senior advisor at the Polson Institute, and non-resident fellow at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Kate may be best known for her work as the founder and director of the Risky Business Project, co-chaired by Michael Bloomberg, Henry Polson, and Tom Steyer. The Risky Business Project focused on the economic risks the U.S. faces from unmitigated climate change. Kate is a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal as one of the paper's energy experts, and she also serves on the nonprofit American Jobs Project and is a member of Sustainable Investing Advisory Board at Brown Advisory. We were also fortunate to have her moderate one of our plenaries last week at the California Adaptation Forum. And I'm personally thrilled to have her with us today as a follow-up because during our conversations around the forum, I learned that in addition to all her other hats, Kate is currently on work on a book focused on just transitions in fossil fuel communities, which is definitely the kind of subject our Infinite Earth listeners are interested in hearing about. So, Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. It's great to be here, Kev. Well, I'm excited to dive into a conversation about your book, but I would hope that you could set the stage for our audience. I'd like to hear a bit about how you got to where you are today, and particularly, what are the things you were seeing that led you to take this deep dive? That's a great question. It's, I always uh, laugh a little when I hear my bio because it sounds like I'm just um, flighty and just running around doing a million things, which is sort of true. But there's an underlying theme to all of them, which is that I've always been really interested in just this question of how communities can prosper economically when, when they are either um, kind of faced with the volatility that comes with some fossil fuel production, uh, like in the natural gas when they're faced with a transition away from some kind of production, whether it's manufacturing or the thing I'm looking at now, which is really fossil fuel extraction, or just, you know, how do communities prosper in general? How can the things that we care about in the climate community um, around, you know, uh, renewable energy, energy efficiency, electrification, uh, restoration, how can those really help become anchors for economic prosperity? So I've always been interested in that. And sort of every project I do is sort of about that. (laughs) And I decided after a number of years working on a variety of things in the clean energy and climate worlds that I wanted to really get back to that question and get back to it head on which is where the book comes from. The specific thing that has led me to want to do the book is an often quoted statistic from those of us who work on climate and energy, which is that there are people always say there's more solar jobs and coal jobs in the United States. And I'd always found that to be a frustrating statistic. And I started digging into why I was frustrated and realized it's not just because those jobs are very different in quality and type, but also I think that that statistic kind of 
underemphasizes the importance of industries like coal and oil, which have really anchored communities. I think it underscores their importance in those communities. So I wanted to kind of dig into that, write about it and think about what happens when we transition away from that type of industry. Interesting. Um, I, I'm guilty of using that statistic myself. <laughs> we all are. Um, and we I all appreciate are. <laughs> you. <sort of. laughs> and it, it, it is, it's, you know, it's easy to talk about jobs in raw numbers, but when we talk about these ideas of anchors and community and history and transition, it takes on a different dimension. I'm curious if you can unpack a little bit some of these concepts because I, I have a sense that they have a bit more nuance and direction for you. But per, let's start with just transition. What does that mean in this context when you're talking about a community that may be deeply embedded in a particular geography and industry? Yeah, that's a great question. So just transition is a concept. It's not a new concept. It's interesting. It's been really taken up, I feel like, by a number of folks in the climate community in the last couple of years. But it's not a it's not a new idea. We've been talking about just transition uh, in the economic development context for years. And essentially what it is, is the question of how do you transition from an industry that has anchored an economy, whether that's manufacturing, agriculture, mining, how do you transition a community when that industry goes under for some reason? And how do you do it in a way that's just? How do you do that in a way that actually respects workers and community and culture? So we've been talking about this for a long time. And I think it, it it's interesting that it's now become such an important concept in the climate world. For me, just transition is an issue. It's really core to the issue of resilience, which I know you work on a lot, because we need to think about transition not just in areas where we're saying we need to close down that coal plant or we need to stop doing mining or we need to find alternatives to oil. We also are going to have to do transition in areas that are affected by physical climate change. So whether areas are going to be increasingly um, so hot that they're unli- almost unlivable in some in some places or certain industries are, are harder to do outside, whether it's you know sea level rise or flooding, I think transition is suddenly much more relevant as part of the climate conversation. At the same time, and one of the things I'm thinking about a lot is I don't think that our old notions of just transition work anymore. I really have come to believe that climate change and climate risk is a macroeconomic trend like globalization and automation, and you can't look at it in isolation. You have to think about what does transition look like at a time where we have climate change impacts, where we do have globalization in the economy, and where there's massive automation of some of these same industries that we've been relying on for years to kind of give people jobs after transition. So I think we're at a really critical moment to rethink this whole idea. I'd love if you could give us a little bit of color to where we're talking about here. These are big concepts. You just, you know, refer to macroeconomic trends. Where are some of the communities that you're looking at? And can give us, you know, a thumbnail sketch of, of what their physical climate risks are and their transition and industry kind of frameworks are. What are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'll give a little bit of detail. I am going into, I think, maybe five different case studies in the book, and I won't give all of them away. An obvious one that I'm certainly not the only person to talk about is Alaska. So, Alaska is an interesting place because so much of its development has been on the back of the oil industry. Obviously, there were people in Alaska before the oil industry, and there's a whole native Alaska set of communities, but the oil industry anchored 
in fact, anchored Anchorage and has really driven a huge amount of economic development there and is very embedded in the culture and the economy to the extent, as we know, that people who live in Alaska get dividends from the industry as if they were shareholders. They're basically shareholders because everyone who lives in Alaska contributes to that industry or benefits from it in some way. So to me, it makes sense that they get a check, dividend check. Alaska is also ground zero for a lot of severe climate impacts. And we've already started seeing that in terms of warmer winters, flooding in some places, ice melt, uh, sea level rise. There are communities that are already having to deal with actually having to move. I mean, looking at mobility options, looking at relocation, that's a very extreme example where if we're serious about climate change and what we have to do to avert it, we need to look at moving away from oil, the industry that anchors Alaska, and at the same time, a number of those communities are actually facing climate impacts today that are causing a complete upheaval of the economy. And so to me, Alaska is a really interesting example of sort of how do we think about transition in a place that's been so anchored by this industry, but also is in such the crosshairs of physical climate impacts. Excellent. I think it's a great example. Any others you want to highlight or save those for the book? <laughs> I can't tell you everything, Kev, because, you know, <laughs> some faster writer than me might come out and, uh, and do this. I mean, I'll just say that I'm, I'm mostly focused on oil and coal because they are industries that are very inherently place-based. They are industries where you find a seam or you find an oil, oil underground, and so that's where you drill or that's where you mine. And then communities have built up around that. They're also multi-generational industries. Natural gas is a little more complicated because it's such a new boom and bust cycle in many places. Oil and coal have entire infrastructures and R&D supports and transportation structures and union structures built up around them. So they're much more entrenched. And I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. And you've actually brought up a couple of things that I want to further unpack a little bit because I think they go along with those stereotypes you were mentioning of sort of solar jobs or coal jobs, it's an easy but maybe false uh, presentation of the story. You've talked about justice, culture, identity, place-based, and you're talking about these old line manufacturing communities. Can you talk about the role of that cultural identity as a factor in this confluence? Because it sounds like it's a big one. I think it is. I mean, my sort of underlying theory is that these inherently place-based industries ground culture in a different way than kind of itinerant industries do. And one of the interesting distinctions, of course, between really between most of the clean energy economy, actually, and the kind of old, if you will, energy economy is that a mining and extraction-based economy is place-based, whereas the clean energy economy is generally pretty distributed. Now, we like that about it, right? I mean, this is not a bad thing, right? It's it's one of the great things about wind, solar, resources, about efi- energy efficiency, is that they are things that we can do in many, many places. They are job creators in a lot of places that have not had that before. They're distributed. People can own them. There's all kinds of great things about that. The downside, though, of distributed energy as kind of a replacement for these very much more entrenched place-based industries is that it's just a very, very different kind of job. Doing Running a coal mine, for instance, or even a coal plant, but coal mines are what I'm really looking at, you're talking about a whole lot of people Not that many of them are miners, but a lot of transportation jobs, a lot of legal and accounting jobs affiliated with that, a number of people who are in the union. I mean, unions play a huge role in these industries. And then, of course, all of the associated jobs from people spending money in that community because of the place-based nature of the industry. When you're talking about distributed solar as the other end of the spectrum, and that's where a lot of our solar jobs come in, you're talking about a temporary construction job 
that could be anywhere. A lot of times people who are experienced solar installers travel around and do different installs. So it's not like seven jobs doing seven roofs. It's one guy doing seven roofs. And uh, once they're installed, the great thing about solar is you don't have to do a whole lot. The energy is free. Whereas with extractive industry, energy has to keep being mined. And that may be not a great thing for the planet, but it's a pretty great thing for jobs. So where has labor been kind of factoring in? You mentioned them a couple of times, and I imagine I know that there's been some tensions between sort of green jobs and labor in the past. And this is one where you really have have sort of an established labor culture and union presence in one industry, but not so much in another. How are they factoring in? Because they are looking after workers. And if these workers need to transition, they're going to have to ultimately engage in that transition. Yeah, I think one of the real challenges for labor right now, I mean, there's a lot of challenges for labor, but one of the big ones and one of the challenges for this particular transition is that one of the places labor still has strength is in these old industrial jobs. So manufacturing unions, steelworkers, pipe fitters, there's a number of these industrial unions that are still doing okay in large part because they really are skilled laborers. So they they have a very particular set of skills The union trains the workers in those skills and has a strong presence in those industries, including a strong relationship with the companies in a lot of cases. That's just a different, I think sometimes we think about labor and we think about public sector unions because that's what most of us see every day, whether it's the bus driver's union or the teacher's union. We don't think as much about these industrial unions. They're kind of the last vanguard of labor. They still have some amount of strength. And at the same time, it's these jobs that we're talking about transitioning away from. So there's kind of a a built-in defensiveness there. I think some of these unions think of themselves as kind of their back up against a wall, being attacked on the one hand for being unions by the legal system, and they're being, being attacked on the other hand for working in jobs that people are now considered dirty and outdated. So I think there's a lot of defensiveness. And also there's just a strong culture around unions. I mean, union halls are a real gathering place for a lot of people. Union culture in these industrial unions actually is very strong. People are very engaged and loyal. So it it sets up a, a complex situation. I do think that unions play a big role, though, in the transition in large part because they are so good at training. Pre-apprenticeships and apprenticeships are some of the best training systems that we have in the United States. To the extent that we can figure out a way to leverage that, a presence of those types of systems and connections to communities, I think that'll be only good. That's a great segue to sort of maybe if, again, you want to share these things, like what are you seeing that where it's working and maybe not even in your case study sites, but some examples of companies or communities that are, are more actively engaged in their own transition or unions who might be any any of the, uh, the players who kind of see the writing on the wall, so to speak, uh, or the water on the floor, if it were, and are starting to step up and follow that, that action. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I see some of the, the success stories, at least historically and in other countries, it's interesting, are really not in the climate space. And I think that's partly because climate change is, most people don't think of it as an macroeconomic trend. Most people think that globalization and automation are inevitable and that climate change is this deeply politicized theory of scientists. And I think we, we obviously have to get beyond that. But in the globalization and automation context, this kind of transition is happening all the time. It's being done better or worse, right? So a good example, a good historical example from the United States is the tobacco transition. When the tobacco lawsuits came, all of the attorneys general filed tobacco lawsuits and, and went after the industry for uh, decades of fraud and, and lying to consumers about the health impacts of tobacco. 
the industry took a huge hit. And one thing that the federal government did in partnership with a number of the states that were along kind of tobacco row, uh, North Carolina and those states, surrounding states, one of the things the industry that, I'm sorry, that the government did was to really come up with a comprehensive transition strategy. It's pretty interesting. You, they leveraged the Appalachian Regional Commission, came up with uh, strategies to transition some of those tobacco fields to other types of agriculture for individual farmers, but they also did put a fair amount of investment through the Commerce Department and the Economic Development Department into community supports and community transition, things like job training and propping up institutions of higher learning and helping people with education bridges to get, get new degrees and a number of other pieces that ended up being really, really important for the communities. So I think that's actually a good historical example and one we can learn a lot from. I certainly think we can learn more from the tobacco transition than from the NAFTA Trade Adjustment Act which is the more recent example, which has not been very successful, essentially because it's sort of job training in a vacuum. And that's something I really think we have to avoid. You can't train people for jobs that don't exist. We have to be really, really careful about what looking at these communities, being very clear about their existing culture, their existing strengths, their assets, their infrastructure, and, and building off of that. One example, I think I was going to give one other example. The tobacco example is one of my favorites. I had another one. Oh, I have a bad example, <laughs> which is, of course, everybody talks about this all the time, but the, you know, taxi to Uber Lyft example, this has not been done well at all. This is sort of, to me, an example of what happens when you don't think ahead about this stuff. Just as an anecdote, I was in a cab not that long ago from San Francisco airport back to my house and the cab driver was a yellow cab, which just declared bankruptcy. And because they declared bankruptcy, they get to erase all of their debt, including their pension. Uh, debt. And so what that means is that these workers who were unionized at Yellow Cab, people don't realize that when workers bargain for pensions, they usually bargain away their social security benefits. So these workers have bargained away their social security benefits for pensions, which are now worthless. And they have taxi medallions, which many of them were banking on to pay for their retirement. And the medallions are now worthless because the company's worthless and nobody wants to buy a medallion. And so here you have an industry which has been the transition is from automation and we just didn't think ahead about it. And now we have a number of people who are, this is why you see cab drivers who are literally in their seventies who are still driving. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the unforeseen consequences are, are that ripple through these things are pretty staggering. And I, I think that from what you're saying and, and many of the things you've said have sort of shifted a new frame on these transitional elements from what I think has been often Pollyannish about the tech and clean tech confluence. Uber and Lyft being an example of that in particular, bringing a lot of value, bringing a lot of new mobility opportunities, but also disrupting in a completely unplanned and, and unresponsive way. Yeah. And I think it's unforeseen-ish, but actually maybe not as unforeseen as we thought. I mean, Uber's been around longer. I don't actually know when Uber found it, but it's been around for at least five years, maybe more. And there are things that we could have done to, and cities, frankly, could have done or governments could have done to, to ease that blow a little bit. That does take government action. It's one of the most challenging things about talking about transition is that we're talking about this massive economic transition that's necessary for a whole host of reasons, as I've said, at exact time that there's less and less engagement from government in these types of transitions. And I think that is a real challenge. Well, speaking of that, I was going to go down this road too, so I'll just jump to it. But a lot of our listeners are policymakers or they're advocates. And I'll skip the federal level for now, but at the state level or maybe at the local level, are there a couple of big, big ideas or big policy mechanisms that communities should be pushing for, championing, and implementing where they can? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've thought this through to some extent. I'm sure there's other ideas and there's great work being done out there. I should just say the just transition world is full of people doing really fantastic work about things like innovative financing and and new models of growth. And I think that's fantastic. I tend to be a little uh, kind of return to first principles to some extent. I really think that sort of economic development 101 is part of this conversation. One thing that communities and cities in particular, counties, regions need to do in general is really robust economic development analysis. They need to understand not only the current workforce, the current industrial mix, where the money flows are happening, what types of job skills are, what's the skills match between the job skills that workers have in the market. Things like geographic advantages, like in here in Sun Valley, we have a lot of geographic advantage to the fact that all these universities are near each other and we have a lot of foundations located near them as well and investment money. So there's a lot of stuff like that. A lot of people do that already. So a number of of regional groups do that work. I think we have to overlay that. You won't be surprised to hear that I think this with with climate risk analysis. You have to also understand where are these physical climate risks and where are the disruption in industry risks that we face and what does that look like? Let's say Richmond, California, which is near where I live. What does that look like? What's the sea level rise impact to the refineries and what's the climate risk impact, you know, transition impact to the refineries? What happens if the refineries piece of the economy of Richmond goes away. How do we think about that ahead of time? What kinds of skills do people have that would make that transition easier? So I really think that just knowledge in preparatory knowledge is critical for this, for cities, because you can't figure out a strategy to move forward if you don't know what assets you're building on. It's just reality. But the other big thing that I think is really important is that we not get caught up in this kind of trap of thinking we can train our way out of this problem. We are simply in a world where, A, there's a lot of automation and there just aren't going to be the same kind of jobs going forward. And B, some of these places are going to be less and less livable because of climate impacts. So I really am a proponent of strategies at the local level to increase mobility for residents. And I think there's a lot of great work being done on that by like the folks who do future of work stuff at Aspen and other places where they're saying, look, we need to think about portable benefits. We need to think about, actually, Kat Taylor said this on our panel at the conference, we need to think about universal basic assets. So if somebody's got a house and it's their entire asset base and they're in an area where their house becomes worthless because it's underwater, where's that person's mobility? Where's that person's option? So I really like strategies that do both, that really understand the context, but also understand that mobility has to be part of this, the discussion. And you're talking about mobility in a much larger sense than what we often talk about as transportation. You're talking about the ability to relocate your identity, your culture, your your work base as a whole. Yeah, and find work. You know, basically the choices, people should have the choice to move on and move out of a place if they need to. And right now, the way that just the economy is in the United States, a lot of people don't have that choice. A a house uh, in West Virginia in an area that's lost its coal mining operation and has lost all of its value literally might be worth less than $50,000. So what does that do for someone trying to relocate out of that area? What does that even do for somebody trying to start, I mean, an entrepreneurial business in place? It's just not a big asset. Well, the entire context of our historical approach to building cities, government, et cetera, has been to permanently and perpetually reinforce the location of that site, whether it's I'm going to focus on the growth of my city, retention of business, retention of population. And this is like flipping that upside down. 
Yeah, I am not saying everybody should abandon where they live because I really do deeply respect that there's place-based culture. You know, I think I think we sometimes think of the US as just this hyper-mobile place where everyone's constantly moving to the coasts, but that's because we live on the coast. Um, it's actually in most parts of the United States, people are extremely uh, place-based. And even here in California, I'm always amazed by the number of people who grew up in the Bay Area who can't leave. And just keep coming back, right? And and settling here. And that's partly because they have family assets here, but it's also because they just they're culturally attuned. So I'm not saying everybody needs to move away from where they're from, because that would not be a rational thing to say. But I do think that people need to have the choice to do it if they need to do it. And if if we get to a point where places are just unlivable or they're just not going to be re- revitalized by the kinds of industry that they had in the past. You know, there's some great opportunity in in things like restoration work in some of these places, but there's no, the difference between an industrial operation, I'll use Hawaii as an example. Hawaii just uh, lost its sugarcane industry in December of this past year. The last sugarcane operation went out of business in Hawaii. That's a globalization issue, not a climate change issue or an automation issue, really. It's it's just moved. All The sugarcane operators are all looking at ecotourism now and sustainable agriculture as replacements for sugarcane. But one of the operators told me when I was last there that a sugarcane operation employs about 650 people and that a sustainable agriculture operation might employ 50. So it's just a very, very different proposition. So as I think about these things and sort of circling back to community identity and some other factors and also layering on this mobility piece, so much of what we talk about in the resilience space comes against equity and not just any old equity, but certainly racial equity. And I wonder how that's emerging as a topic or not in your exploration of these sites, because you've also, you sort of shed a new light on a lot of topics. And I wonder if there's some new light to be shed on, on sort of race and equity in these transitional communities. Yeah, I mean, for sure, this isn't isn't new, but there's a couple of different lenses you can look at that through. I mean, one is that there's certainly a big conversation to be had about economic equity and just people, they're really different prospects in the U.S. economy today for those who have assets and those who don't. And I think there is an equity conversation to be had there. Unions have been a stabilizing force for parts of the country where people don't have a lot of assets. It's interesting looking at some of these communities that I'm focused on. People aren't making a ton of money, but there's not a huge amount of inequality. The spread is not as big as you would imagine. Because there's, you know, union set wages, there's kind of a structure in place and people are making more than minimum wage who are in these industries. On the other hand, there's a whole history of inequity, uh, racial inequity in these structures. I mean, we all know that a number of industrial unions have been terrible about diversification within their ranks and a number of these places are super, super white. So I think those lenses both have to be looked at. I'm not as much looking at sort of urban context where you do a lot of your work because that's not where a lot of mining happens, right? <laughs> you know, the the Marcellus, uh, the Monterey Shale gas and oil uh, seam famously runs under Los Angeles, but we're never going to ta- we're never going to frack in the middle of Los Angeles, right? <laughs> so, right? Not so, with Eric Garcetti in office. <laughs> I think not ever. I think it's pretty safe to say. So it's, it's a different set of conversations. But one thing that's interesting to me, and I haven't done a lot of exploration of it, but I've started thinking about it is, is it really true? Like most of the data show that 
urbanization trends are just speeding up in the United States. And if everyone is moving to cities, then of course, that just becomes a whole other conversation about how do you make sure that there's equity within these very, very dense, crowded, and extremely unequal in terms of income cities that we're building or that we're expanding. Absolutely. And and if we face situations where some communities, as I know we are experiencing, and we've talked on this show about Louisiana, are being almost abandoned what is left behind? What does that leave as a legacy of toxicity or pollution, especially if they're old industrial sites? And it's still ours, even if we've moved away from it as a country or, or a nation. Yeah. And it's to be optimistic again. I, I do, I've increasingly been really interested in the whole world of carbon removal and sort of how do we deal with the carbon in the atmosphere. And I do think there's some really interesting opportunity. If we start putting a value on carbon, there's some really interesting opportunity for people to actually do carbon removal as an industry. And there is no better place to do that than some of these old abandoned places. So, you know, you can grow a lot of trees and you can do a lot of interesting sort of direct air capture and other carbon removal stuff. So that seems like a bright spot potentially. Well, that is a topic we could invite you back for, for sure. Because <laughs> I, I, I would Yeah, love- that's like a whole other conversation. It's totally fascinating for anyone who has been following the, you know, the upcoming release of the 1.5 degree report from the IPCC. One of the big takeaways from that report is, We can do all the mitigation we want, but it ain't going to solve the problem. We actually have to figure out a way to get carbon out of the air. Well, and these are things that, you know, there are are touch points that I think the sort of many environmentalist climate folks are cautious about either speaking about or even embracing or looking at. And carbon removal has been one of those. I think it it smacks of geoengineering and sort of large-scale solutions to a large-scale problem. But as we continue to fall short of our goals for mitigation, it just becomes a bigger and bigger hurdle, which it sounds like IPCC is, is going to say we're going to have to address. It definitely says that. And I just have to, just because I, here I am being recorded, I have to say there is a big difference between planting a tree and solar radiation management, right? I mean, geoengineering, I think that's overused as a term. We're really talking that the strategies that are out there for carbon removal include things like literally just planting more trees or land-based strategies that are a little bit more intensive, all the way up to, yes, industrial solutions like direct air capture, but you're still just removing carbon from the air and then thinking about innovative ways to recapture it and things like concrete and other materials. I'm not going all the way to iron filings in the ocean and solar radiation management, which I think are a very, very different thing and need to be thought of as a different thing. Well, we have you on record as saying that, so now you're committed. I'm on record. So as a one sort of, I guess, closing question, if, if you will, Infinite Earth tries to be empowering to our audiences to go beyond the stories we tell on the podcast. Are there any particular resources, networks, or tools our audience should be looking at to get informed and engage in this conversation? Yeah, I mean, I, I of course, um, full disclosure, am on their board, and I think you said this, but I really recommend the American Jobs Project, where I'm on the board, is one of the better organizations out there doing granular analysis of what the actual clean energy and advanced energy opportunities are in specific states. And that's basically the kind of economic development 101 I was talking about. They focus on advanced energy solutions, but they do the full on, you know, where are the assets? What is the state? What's the state infrastructure look like? What's the economy look like? I just look at that work there as a nonprofit. A number of states have already been done. It's really fascinating to see what they've come up with in terms of sort of the biggest opportunities. And and I think people should look at that because we need to have a place to go. You can't just think about sort of saying no on coal without thinking of what what you're saying yes to. What's the bridge? So I like that a lot. I like, I mean, there's a lot of good resources out there. There's some great just transition work going on all over the country. I actually think that uh, 
some of the best works being done, not surprisingly, down in the Appalachia and in the in the southeast. And of course, no names of anyone are coming to my mind right now <laughs> because you're recording me. But I would just look into that because it's I, I think there's some good solutions out there. And you know, I think as you do, I know, Kev, that people should have a better sense of climate risk. We need to incorporate analysis of the physical risks over the next five to fifty years from climate impacts into our economic planning. It needs to be mainstream. It needs to just be done. And that's something that I think you can help with. I think that the adaptation folks can help with. I think there's some great people out there. Jupiter 427 started to do really good granular modeling, Rhodium group on that exact kind of question. So lots of good resources out there. It's just a matter of kind of what I'm trying to do is to connect all those dots, is to not keep siloing this economic development conversation and this climate conversation and really just try to connect those dots and start planning for prosperity that's much more sustainable. Well, thank you so much. I got one last question, but it's an important one. When can we expect the book to come out? <laughs> well, I'm hoping for the, you know, books take forever to come out. I'm hoping for the end of 2019. I definitely am hoping to get it out before we're, we're trying to get it out before the, the 2020 election, because I think there's a lot in there that ends up being pretty political just because these are the kinds of things people are struggling with every day and worrying about, and that gets into politics. So hopefully at the end of next year. Well, we will be happy to, to have you back to talk about it when it's out or talk about carbon removal or anything else. It's been an absolute pleasure. We're out of time. I want to thank you so much, Kate. Oh, thank you, Kip. This was great. Thank you all for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.